The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. How, how many of you were hoping we would get to this passage this morning? <laughs> you, were, you were longing um, to hear a genealogy. No, if, if you ever tried to, if you, ever, if you got bold one, one year and you were like, I'm going to read through the Bible. And you started reading, you did all right for a while, depending on what book you were in, and then you ran into one of these, right? Uh, whoa, all our, um, our passion and energy seems to, to face a major challenge. It's hard to know what to do with these things. We don't understand why they're here. Well, let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard of Ancestry.com? Ancestry.com. Um, as of two, the 16 billion historical records. It has over 2 million paying subscribers, and of February 2018, more than 7 million people have become customers for Ancestry DNA. Why? Well, their motto, after all, they say, your family story is the story that leads to you. Your family story is the story that leads to you. So evidently, a lot of us are in on our ethnic background, why? It shows us who we are. It shows us where we've come from. It, it helps us see our place in the world. So this morning we heard the, gene, the genealogy of Jesus. Here Luke, as he's given us this account of Jesus' life, he takes the, a very specific, detailed genealogy. Why do you think he does that? Do you think his intention is, I really want to mess with all my readership, uh, I really want to test their mettle, see if they can really hang in there through this, I'm going to bore them out of their minds and see if they'll keep going. Is, is that his, that's what we want to get at today, and I think you already probably have a clue. It's the same reason uh, we sign up for Ancestry.com. What are we trying to find out about Jesus? Who is he? Who is he? Where does he come from? And so I want so far in the Gospel of Luke. Number one, I just want to remember with you what Luke is trying to show us so far. Let's play a little mental game. Uh, some of you have probably read Luke a thousand times. Maybe some of you haven't read it at all. Either way, let's pretend like it's the first time. Let's pretend like it's the first time. Let's pretend we're, we're see. What is this man all about? What is, he, why, what is he working so hard to say? Let's try to learn. Let's at least hear his claims, whether we agree or not. We're going to see what he's trying to say about Jesus. Second, not only is Luke going to give us news about who Jesus is, he's going to start to give us qualifications. He's going to make a huge claim. And that claim is going to take some evidence, some proving, so that you could actually believe it. So we want to see who Jesus is and some of the qualifications for that. Three, I want to think with you then about what it is that Jesus can do based on who he is uniquely. Him. And so we want to see who he is and why and what it is he alone can do based on who he alone is. So who he is, qualifications, his uniqueness, and then that's all just going to add up into how are you going to respond? How am I going to respond? How are we going to respond to claims like these? Looking at is, what is Luke saying about Jesus? Now, I want to take just a few seconds to, to look with you at the first three or four verses of Luke, because I want you to hear Luke's perspective. Look at Luke 1, verse 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. You may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, last week we looked at how Luke stands up so well as an ancient historian. Um, 
plenty of evidence that Luke is one of the most trustworthy of ancient historians that we have. He's telling you what he's after in verses 1 to 4. He says, I know eyewitnesses of the things that have happened. I know eyewitnesses. I've collected accounts. I've wanted to put them into a narrative form so that you can see it, so that you can hear it. And if you look at verse 4, that you may have, what's that word he used? Is grounding claims in what he believes to be eyewitness historical reality. So that when you read this, it's not a myth written 200 years after the fact. It's based on historical reality so that you could believe that it's real. That's what Luke is trying to say. So we need to read him as if he means what he says, right? He's claiming something has happened historically. That's what he's claiming. Now I want to move you to a different text. It's very different. Where Luke gives an account of what the angel Gabriel said. Count where you start to get your first perception of what Luke is saying about Jesus. Here's what we see. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. Luke chapter 1, 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be what? He will be great. You've never seen anybody like this. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And pay attention to this next line. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, who? David. David. And there will be no end. Massive claims. Massive claims. First, I want to I back up with you a little bit. He said he's going to reign over the, house, uh, the throne of his father, David. Why does this matter? Who cares? Think of all the lists of ancient Near Eastern. Tell you why we should care. Let's back up and just remember the storyline of the Bible. The Bible has a unified story. It's saying something. It starts with, number one, a good and holy God who makes everything by the word of his power. He's eternal. He's beautiful. He's holy. He's perfect. He's generous. He's loving. He's wise. He makes everything by the word of his power. And he makes it humans. Adam and Eve, male and female, human beings made in his image to know him, to enjoy him, to live in this world that he's designed for them, to represent him on the world. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's so good. They're to know his love, love one another. But something happens that explains. That's, part, that's the part of the Christian story I don't even need to explain to you. Have you, have you watched the news? Have you, have you looked at your own relationships? Have you seen uh, the devastation all the way from our hearts to the, to the injustice in the world? Why? What is going on? Well, it's, this is what happened. Adam and Eve are made them. Instead of following his design for them, they de-godded him. They said, we want him out of the way. And they said, we want to take his place. We're going to define what's good and evil. We're going to be our own authorities. Get out the way, God. We rebel, and that takes us into the fall. We've ruined ourselves. We've broken our the God who has made us. We're broken. But God is gracious and kind. So gracious and kind. And he promises he's going to reconcile. That word is so important in the biblical storyline because uh, it has the idea of a debt, right? We need to make the debt. Um, we, need, we need to have it paid for. So somehow this rebellion, but reconcile also has a relational term, right? We've, our relationship with God is broken. We need it to be put together again so we can know him as our father, as our friend, the one who loves us. How is this going to happen? Well, somebody's going to come, and this is the way it's going to work. It's a crazy story. God chooses a man named Abraham. He says, Abraham, I'm going to serve. Trust me. And as you do that, I'm going to make you into a family. And then I'm going to grow that family, and I'm going to make that family into a nation. And then out of that nation, there's going to be a king. And from that king, there's going to come the ultimate king, who's going to what? Reconcile the world. Reconcile. He's going to reign on his throne of his father. David thing is important. The angel is saying that king, the one. The one who is going to accomplish the plan that's been in motion from the beginning. The one who's going to reconcile the world to God. Hey, Mary, that's your baby. 
That's your baby. If you want to read them later, 2 Samuel 12 to 14, you can see God's promise to David where God says to David, one of your sons is going to reign forever. Then we could go to Psalm 2. Actually, let's look there. Psalm 2, 7 to 12. Psalm 2, 7 to 12. You can see this theme growing in Scripture, the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Then there's a warning. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do you see this promise from Scripture? This prediction? God has a king, and he's going to reign over. And so the response would be, you can be against him, not recommended. Or you can take refuge in him. You can turn to him. You can repent to him. You can trust in him. And you'll know his blessing. Do you see that? What's the first claim here Luke is making? Who is Jesus? Davidic king. He's the linchpin of the story. He's the one who brings God's promises to come to pass. He's the one. He's the king that will rule over everyone and everything forever. It's him. Now, honestly, is that one of the biggest claims you could ever make about anyone? Actually, it can. I want to show you the rest of what Gabriel said to Mary, chapter 1, verse 34. Mary starts by saying, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Verse 35 the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. What are we going to call him? The son of God. This is more than just a human king. It's more than just a human king. He doesn't even have a human father. God has placed this child in Mary's womb and the way one person, Jesus Christ, who is fully God in his essence and his nature, has come and taken on human flesh. God has come. We saw this last week. The prophecy from Isaiah 700 years before Jesus. God would come. God's going to visit. And, and John the prophet said he's come in, in the flesh. Wow. Do you see Luke's claim? What's he saying? Jesus of Nazareth. He's the promised king that scripture has been talking about for a thousand years. He's come. The one who's going to, we all owe allegiance. The one to whom we all must respond. He's come. His name's Jesus. He's here. And not only is he the promised Davidic king, he is divine. He is God in the flesh. That's a big claim. Do you believe that? What would it take for you to believe that? What would it take? What would you need to see? What would convince you? That's really what Luke is trying to build for a long time. And he's taking it one piece at a time. And he starts here in this section of his gospel to give us qualification, show us one piece at a time. Jesus is the promised king who's going to reign forever. Jesus is the son of God in human flesh. Last week, we saw the baptism. Do you remember what happened there? Luke 3, verses 21 to 22. Everybody's coming to get baptized by an unruly crowd. And there's, a, there's Jesus. And, you know, uh, the Bible tells us Jesus didn't levitate. He wasn't eight feet tall. He didn't glow. He didn't have, uh, you know, if you've seen pictures of him, his hair is always perfectly done. I don't, I don't think so. Um, he looks like everyone else. How do we know he's any different? He comes to get baptized. This happened. When all the people were baptized, Jesus had also been baptized. He was praying. The heavens were opened. 
people saw something. Hard to explain. The heavens were open. The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. You could see God's presence come upon Jesus and a voice come. What does the voice say? You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. It's so interesting in the context of baptism because when you go to get baptized by John the Baptist or or in a Christian church, one thing you're saying is, I'm really messed up, and I need, I need God to change me. I need God to save me. I need help. And so it's strange, isn't it, that the Son of God, who is perfect, sinless, he gets baptized. Whoa, 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 why, why does he need to be baptized? And this is exactly what this voice is getting at. He's perfect. I'm well pleased. I'm satisfied. He's walking in your shoes. He's walking in my shoes. But his identity, again, has been established. Who is Jesus according to the voice of God? He's the son of God. He's the promised king. We'll see another qualification. We've seen it in the baptism. We're going to see another qualification next week in chapter 4. Very strange passage. Guess what's going to happen? Jesus is going to go out into the wilderness, into the sticks. He's not going to eat for a month. And he's going to be tempted by the devil himself. And look at the main theme. The devil says to him, if you are the son of God. Are you sure? The devil will say. And guess who wants to wreck his identity, his qualifications as the son of God? I mean, if this is real, if this spiritual thing is real, well, who might be against that? Satan himself, and if he knows the Son of God has come, and we can disqualify him, right? Satan's been really good. I think each one of us has fallen in. Have you, fall, have you ever fallen into temptation? If you haven't, can you talk to me after? I want to hear from you. Have you ever... Uh, for Satan to bring his best, his, his full-on temptation and question... The qualification of Jesus to be the son of God, the promised king who reconciles the world. That's what that's all about. That's next week. Will Jesus pass the test? We'll see. I'll show you what Luke's doing. He's established a claim of who Jesus is. And now, now it's all begun. The baptism. Look, another claim of who Jesus is. Next chapter, chapter 4, a claim of who Jesus is, an attack on who Jesus is. Throughout the Gospels, we're going to be watching him. All the stories of what he teaches and what he does. Is it true? Is this who he is? And in between the baptism and the temptation, a genealogy. Gosh, who cares? I get a voice from God in chapter 3, and I get Satan coming for a wrestling match in chapter 4, and you're going to... Why? Just because it's real history. Just because it's real history. What has what Luke claimed about Jesus? He's going to sit in the throne of his father, David. All throughout the rest of this gospel, and Jesus is going to have tons of enemies, tons of enemies. There's one thing they would have to do to, to end this whole game. You know what it would be? All they have to do is prove that he can't prove that he's related to David. Because where's one spot? When's it, when's it for real? When we're talking about the next king. Now it's for real. Now it's on. Did you know the Jewish people were very intentional about preserving their genealogies? This was huge to them. Read the Old Testament. It's huge to them. It's important for many reasons. It's your inheritance of the land. You want to keep your land throughout the generations? You've got to prove it with genealogies. You had to have your genealogy straight if you were a priest. Are you really in the line of Levi and, of course, the king? And what do you think? In uh, the first century, did the Jewish people know their genealogies? You ever been to a Christmas play? This verse, Luke 2, verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? 
Why does he have to go there? Well, Caesar Augustus says you have to go to your city of origin and you have to pay taxes. How do you know where your city of origin is? Well, it's part of your genealogy. Bethlehem, why? Because they're in the line of David. They know their genealogies. If you've ever read the Gospels, have you ever seen the Pharisees come up to Jesus and be like, you're a fraud, you don't have a genealogy that leads to David? Do you ever see that once? Do you think they ever ran to the library and were like, look that, pretend to read a scroll? (laughs) Next scroll, let's find it. Where is it? They never come at him with this accusation. They come with every other one you can possibly imagine. They never come with this one. Why don't they ever come with this one? It would have ended the game. You're not related to David. You're not the promised king. How come they never come with that accusation? Because he's related to David. Amazing. You know what happened in AD 70? I know I'm being real historical with you. Why, Why are we being so historical? Why am I trying to give you that this has historical legs to it? Because I don't want anyone to walk out from here saying, oh, this Christian myth thing that helps me feel good about my hard life. I hope hope you feel God's comfort when your life is hard. Because you believe in a historical King Jesus who really came, who really is related to King David, who really is the promised king. It's amazing to realize AD 70, do you know what happens there? History of Israel. Roman comes and just as Jesus predicts, he, he overthrows Jerusalem, burns it to the ground. And guess what was lost? The genealogical records. So ever since 70 AD, it has been impossible for anyone to Kaya because no longer they, can they establish any lineage to David. Isn't that incredible? All claims to being the Messiah, they're over. It had to be pre-70 AD. And Luke is showing us, hey, it's here. Now, uh, differences between the genealogy in Matthew and the genealogy in Luke we'll have that raging theological debate and discussion. So you could, you could sign up for that afterwards. I decided not to go into big detail on that this morning. I hope, please forgive me if you're greatly disappointed. <laughs> the difference is worth mentioning. A big one is there are differences. And so you might say, Uh, shouldn't the genealogies match up? Well, you can imagine some reasons why they might line up genealogies probably in a couple of different ways and still end from start to finish. And again, I won't get into all the details on uh, how this marriage worked and how that king worked and was it the royal succession or the blood, yeah, okay? But one theory I think that's really interesting is as you read the Gospel of Luke and the ministry and the leadership of Jesus' female disciples, the women who loved him, who followed him. Not, not the 12 apostles, but the, the followers. And uh, what's interesting in Matthew is Matthew points out a couple of women. And if you, if you look into who they are, they're the women with, the, like Rahab. You remember what's on her resume? Prostitute in Jericho. Okay? Also not Jewish. And so Matthew is putting these in there. Why? He wants to show you Jesus has, there, there are um, sinners, okay, in Jesus' genealogy to show you, hey, who's Jesus going to save? All of us, okay? It doesn't matter how bad your story is. He would love to save you. Then it's kind of strange because you get to Luke and you read the whole gospel of Luke and he loves to show, I mean, he's got speeches that are huge from Elizabeth, from Mary. He loves geology. It's all dudes. And you're, why did Matthew do it that way and Luke did it this way? We can't prove any of this perfectly, okay? But here's an idea some commentators have put out. Luke is following a very, this is the way, this is the way everybody would do a genealogy back then. He's following a culturally, that one line's kind of funny. Um, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age 
being the son, and then what do you have in the parenthesis there? As was supposed. That was Joseph. Now, given the way nature and normal assumption for most of us, uh, Jesus is Joseph's son. But we've read the story. We've heard the accounts. And we know this was different. And so why does the genealogy start this way? I mean, it would be fair to count. You go, your grandpa to grandson, that's, that's valid as long as we know that they know the steps. You can skip steps. Um, why would they count in this way? Why these names? And some commentators, especially older ones, who a lot of times tend to be better, um, they say, you know what? One reason this genealogy is different is because Luke is working through Mary. Because it says he's the son, as opposed of Joseph, but then maybe this guy, Heli, um, he's in Mary's line. And so there's, we could, we could go further into this, but there's, there's a good reason to think Matthew has shown you, and it, it counts because adoption would work, uh, Jesus is of the line of David through his dad. Luke is showing you, not only that, but Jesus is in the line of David through his mother. Because uh, where did he get his, his flesh from? <laughs> However this works. He was in his mother's womb. He's in the line of David. Hey, what's the point? Who's Jesus related to? David. Does that matter? Now, is that enough to make Jesus the Messiah? No, there's lots of people related to David. But is it essential, absolutely essential, for Jesus being who Luke claims him to be? Absolutely essential. We've got the temptation. Jesus is going to show He's the son of God. He's the promised king. We've got the message from Gabriel. He's the son of God. He's the promised king. And even in the boring blood, sweat, and tears of a genealogy, guess who David is? Or Sorry, guess who Jesus is? He's the son of David. He's the promised king. One more difference. Matthew only goes from Abraham. How far back does he keep going? All the way back to Adam. Why? What's he saying? Well, again, what did Adam bring with him? What's the, why do we even have to have this whole theme, this whole energy to save? Why? Well, it goes back to that problem with Adam. In Adam, right, we all took a nosedive. It all turned evil. We all lost it. So he takes us all the way back because guess what there, there needs to be? There needs to be a new Adam, a new son of God, to carry us through. Look at what the apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. Luke and Paul were close friends. And look at what the apostle Paul says in Luke 15, or, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For as by a man came death, who's the man? Where we all got death. And also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all Die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus is going to undo what Adam has done. Jesus is uniquely the promised Davidic king and the son of God who has taken on flesh to reconcile the world back to the Father. Wow. We're all connected to him. We all need him. By the way, you see the ultimate. I asked you earlier, what would you need to see to believe that Jesus is the son of God, the promised king? What would you need to see? You, you might need more than a story about the baptism. You might need more than a genealogy. You might need more than a story about his temptation. What if he predicted by the Roman government and on the third day, he would rise from the dead, and then he did it. Would that play for you? Would that work? Would that be enough? And that's his greatest qualification. He rose. So I hope we're getting Luke's point. Who's Jesus? 
He's the promised Davidic king who's gonna reign and rule over everything forever. He's the son of God who's taken on human flesh to reconcile the world back to the father. Gabriel was kind of understating it when he said, he will be great. Jesus do uniquely based on who he is. What does every other religious teacher out there want from you? What do they say to you? As you read their teachings, you look at their works. This is the way. Follow the way. This is the way. Uh, Will they ever, the major religious leaders, will they ever claim to be without sin? Will they ever claim to be perfect? To my knowledge, not one. Um, They will say that their teaching is trustworthy. You should follow their teaching. Religious leader from, from great prophets, the thing we can get for them is a good truth to follow. I want to, I want to see with you now how unique Jesus claims to be, how unique he is, and how what he does is absolutely, absolutely unique. Timothy 2, verse 5. Again, from the Apostle Paul, Luke's friend and co-worker. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. Look what Paul says there. There's one God, and there is one, what, mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ for all. What's a mediator do? It takes two parties that have problems with each other and brings them together. Think about it. Think think about your relationship with God, my relationship with God. Before you were a Christian, or if you're not a Christian, think about it. I, I know this was true. You know, have you ever had problems with God? You, you read what he says, and you're like, no. <laughs> you don't want to love him. You don't want to be with him. You, you don't want to be submitted to him. My heart is turned. The, the Bible's honest when it says we're hostile to God. I've got problems with God. Well, guess what? Here's the hard end of it. God had problems, problems. With our rebellion, he's, a, he's the ultimate judge. He's perfectly good. How does someone who is perfectly good feel about evil and wretchedness and wickedness? Imagine you're the judge in a courtroom and someone has committed atrocities that we don't even want to say in a setting like this. And you just can't wait, can't wait to try to make this right. He, he, God has problems with us. We need a mediator. Who could possibly mediate between a holy God and rebellious people. Because if any normal person walks in, the problem is they're still in this category over here. Rebellious person. Their live still is infinitely short of the law God has given. No normal human can mediate between us and a holy God. It cannot happen. But one has come who can mediate. There is one mediator between God and men. It's he gave himself as a ransom. So he willingly came. Willingly came. He willingly set aside all his glory and his majesty and took on flesh. He gave himself as a ransom willingly on the cross. How does it mediate? How is it a ransom that buys you back? Think about it. Why is it that we die, biblically speaking? Why is it we deserve to die? Why is it everyone dies? It's because we've sinned. The wages of sin is death. It's the new normal, but it's not our sin. We each deserve death. And here's Jesus. Perfect life. Does he deserve death? No. No. He's never sinned. The father said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And yet where does he go? Where does he go? Shameful, evil, awful death. Why? He's not dying for his sins. For whom is he dying? For yours. This is a substitute. This is him taking upon himself what you and I deserved so that as the Father pours out all his justice on the sons, 
Now what has happened to that need for justice? It's satisfied. And as the son then gives us his perfection and his righteousness through our faith in him, the father then looks at those who have sinned and now have trusted in Christ and he looks at you and he looks at me and he says what? Perfect, forgiven, has worked. God's heart towards you is love, all sins forgiven. All wrath is gone. And as we see his love for us, right? Why is he there? He's paying for our sins, but he's paying willingly. He gave himself for you. When you see who you are and who he is and what he's doing for you and you see his love, you now come to God and say, you know what? I want to know you as my father. I want to be with you. I want to be reconciled to you. I want to be brought back to you. The mediator reconciled you back to the father and there's only one who could do it. If Jesus is just a good human, say theoretically, he's a good human who never sinned, how many people can he die for? Say, theoretically, he never sinned, he's a good human, he wants to pay, uh, maybe he can pay for one person, but he's more than just a good human. Who is he? He's the son of God. What kind of a debt can the eternal son of God pay on the cross? Infinite. Majestic. He can reconcile all of his people. I mean, have you ever had a moment of clarity and you, or sorry, <laughs> the justice God owes you for how you've lived? Have you ever had that moment of clarity? It's life changing. It's terrible, actually. It's much more comfortable to live in kind of this world where you're like, I'm really good. And if you know, the, the furthest we go to test that is like, well, I'm not a Hitler. As if God's like, <laughs> It's not the standard he uses. When you see who we are and compare to the standard and you realize what we deserve and then to see that Jesus is not only paying for mine, for mine. I mean, even this, there's not a ton of people in here right now. I'm so glad you're here. What would it take for one person to pay for just all the sins represented in this room? And then just keep adding it up. You want to add in uh, John Newton, people like that. You know who that guy is? You ever heard that song, Amazing Grace? Before he wrote hymns, do you know what his job was? Slave trader, okay? He enslaved, he enslaved people. What sins do you think that brother has on his resume? Moments, would you have not said on the deck of that ship, burn in hell, you are so wicked. Would you, would you have not felt it? And Jesus goes to the cross for him and pays for his sins and my sins. How about King David? Do you know his story? Who could possibly mediate between God, the man Christ Jesus, the, the, the promised Davidic king related to King David all the way through, and the eternal son of God in flesh who lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead. Is there anyone else out there who could do anything even close? Nobody. He's the one. He's the one. How do we respond? How do we respond? What are you supposed to do with a claim like this? What are you supposed to do? I'm going to, um, C.S. Lewis was a British apologist, writer, thinker. And he had this, he had this kind of three, uh, three L's kind of quote. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, right? I mean, look at these claims. Look at these claims Luke is making of Jesus. Jesus is gonna make all of these claims about himself, okay? The eternal whom God is going to reconcile the world and save people from his wrath. That's who he's claiming to be. You've got three options. What's option number one? He is a dirty liar. He's a snake. He's got everybody fooled. It's just a game. It's just a joke. He wants power. Okay. Have you read the Gospels? <laughs> Is that possible? Is that possible? He's the kindest person to ever live. He's the most humble person to ever live. He has the highest ethical teachings out there. Is it possible that he's a liar? No. All right, maybe he's just cracked, right? I like the way Lewis... Evidently, they eat those in England. Poached eggs. 
So, so is Jesus, he thought he was God, okay? He's really just normal dude, but he, he's got a God complex. We feel sorry for him. Ugh, poor guy, thinks he's God. Okay, again, have you read the Gospels? Is Jesus insane? Have you encountered people with mental illness? Very difficult for so many families all around the world. Have you, have you encountered people with mental illness? How many of them throughout history are considered to be the greatest leaders, religious teachers, and saviors of all time? None. Is it possible that Jesus is mentally ill? Liar. And he's not insane. You are left with one choice. Who is he? He's Lord. He really is God's king who will reign forever. He really is the son of God who took on human flesh. You tell me, how should you respond? Let's pray.
Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.